Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Whatever you pray for unity, you're praying along with Jesus. In John 17, Jesus prays for the unity of his church. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's speaking of the apostles and he's praying for the church. And all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. They also may be in us, so the world may believe that you've sent me. So unity is a sign to the world that uh, that, um, Christ is powerful and they're attracted to the church. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me may be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So you have... uh, John 17, 20 through 23, on the unity of Christ, uh, praying for our unity as a church and as a people. We want to pray this morning for all those who are uh, facing um, a renewed uh, spread of COVID. Uh, as you know, the president in the White House has been hit real hard. So these are football fans, Cam Newton and a number of the folks on the Patriots have been real hard. Tennessee Titans has had their game postponed because a number of the staff and the players have contracted the virus. Some are asymptomatic. Some are feeling uh, symptoms mildly. Others are more serious. So we want to continue to pray for the end of this uh, pandemic and for the Lord's healing and protection of all who have it, uh, especially those who are in our authority. Let's pray. Father, we lift up the president today and for the White House, for all the staff, and for all those um, ball players. In all those in nursing homes and everywhere, we pray for their healing. We pray for their protection. We pray for their restoration. We pray, Lord, that this pandemic would end. We pray, Lord, bring repentance in our hearts that we may repent as a nation as a result of the uh, virus, a recognition, Lord, of our frailty and help us to recognize our need for you. We pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Come with your presence, Lord, and uh, bring healing from this disease. We pray in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen. As you know, I really get blessed and encouraged by um, John Piper's uh, podcast called Ask Pastor John. Uh, It's three times a week, and it can automatically download into your phone. Two of those three times, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He's actually taking questions and responding to people's concerns and needs. Many of the questions are very insightful, very helpful, especially for new believers. And someone wrote, um, I guess it was last week, saying, why we have, uh, why is the Bible so violent? You know, they had run across the story. They were a new believer. They walked their dogs and listened to the Bible on tape. And they read the story from Judges 19 about the man and his concubine who were traveling. And as they were traveling, uh, he uh, reached uh, Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, the city of Gibeah. And he reached that town and could not find any hospitality there. Jerusalem at the time had not been conquered by David. It was the closest city, but it was held by the Jebusites, and so he wanted to avoid it. So he thought he would go to Gibeah, which was a Israelite town. In ancient culture, hospitality is considered the, one of the highest values of that culture. Uh, welcoming someone into their home, meeting a traveler in their need, seeing uh, um, Uh, their want and their desire for shelter. When he reaches this town, no one will take him in, this man and his concubine servants. 
and they're actually sleeping on the street. An older man who doesn't really live in town but outside sees them and welcomes them to his home. And um, this is one of the, uh, what it's, Scripture is painting is a town that is so hardened that it won't welcome anyone within its heart. It's interesting that the chapter begins in chapter 19 that in those days Israel had no king. And later in several other verses, judges will say, Israel had no king, and they did what was right in their own eyes. So Judges is a picture of a people who have, um, who are doing exactly what's in their hearts, and nothing is restraining them. It's a picture of a culture of people who are making their own rules and living their own lives and living by their own deceptions and excusing their own actions. That reminds us of something. <laughs> you know, we've become a culture of expressive individualists where we only believe what we believe and whatever we believe is what we believe is right and we do whatever we want no matter how it affects others because we're looking for our own happiness. Okay. It sounds just like to me, judges. We're doing what is right in our own eyes. So in the city, this man is looking for help, and these, this, uh, he's staying in this older man's home, and this crowd comes and demands the man. And the way the text is written, the writer of Judges wants you to make a comparison between Sodom and Gomorrah. The way they responded uh, to strangers in their land, wanting to rape them and pillage them and use them, destroy them, the people in the Judges are acting, in Gibeah, are acting just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, yet they're supposed to be the people of God. In an ancient culture, you do not, um, for any reason whatsoever, allow your guests to be harmed. It's considered a, um, a great insult to allow anyone staying with you. So he offered his concubine. Now, we, we would find this highly offensive, and, and it's a different culture. But these men uh, raped her, ravaged her, beat her up, and she died holding on to the doorframe of that man's house trying to get in. Okay. The writer of Judges wants you to see just how low Israel has become, that its behavior has become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. What the man does, and we also find this offensive, but this is the culture that they were in. He, the man takes his concubine and cuts her up into 12 pieces and mails, if you will, each piece to the 12 tribes of Israel and says, look at what these people have done. Look of how they have acted. They need judgment. And he mails these pieces of her body around Israel and Israel raises up an army to bring judgment on Gibeah. And that's chapter 20. Okay. We, when, we, uh, when Piper was asked about this chapter, in fact, he was the one who brought it up, you see how violent it is. You wouldn't want a movie made about it. So you would ask, why is it there? 
Piper raises a good point. Stories like this and Book of Judges, the way it is, how harsh it is, is put in the Bible because one day there would be a culture that's so coddled, so soft, so easily offended, so spoiled, so cocooned, so overprotected, that it will never understand how violent the world is, really is. How when people are left on their own, how destructive they can become and how sinful they can act. No, I wouldn't want a movie made of the scene, but I'm glad it's there because it reminds me of what a people will look like when they cast off God, when they cast off his commands, when they cast off love of Christ, when they cast off conscience. This is what the world will look like. And we've seen this in our culture already in Seattle, in Portland. People cast off all restraint, do what is right in their own eyes, push back authority and please stay away because it's so violent. We're breeding a culture of expressive individualists who are doing only what is right in their own eyes. And we stand shocked by their violence, but we shouldn't be because the book of Georges is already warning us that this kind of violence exists. This is what truly is in the hearts of people when they cast off all restraint. We need to remind ourselves when we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, that we live in a bubble. We live in a highly unusual situation that most people in the world, even right now, don't experience. Do any of you men, have you dug a latrine? Okay. Any of you ladies take big jars of water, go down to the creek and get enough water for cooking that day? Like you see with the African tribal ladies, you know they all have neck problems at the end of their life, carrying all that water on their head. You know? We have, most of us have four TVs, two or three cars. Everyone has a cell phone. We have running water, electricity. And we get upset when the internet goes down for a few minutes. The cable goes off. Passages like this in the Bible remind us of what our hearts can become and what we can become be like when we don't look to the Lamb. When we haven't really decided in our hearts we truly want to follow Him. That when things get tough and we're disappointed and we're hurt and we're so easily doubtful of God's goodness, how far our hearts can go. The Lamb suffered for us. The Lamb was slaughtered for us so that we wouldn't have to reap this violence on ourselves. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we're going to be in Revelation a good bit this morning, so you may want to turn there.
All the inhabitants of the earth, this is 13.8, will worship the beast. And all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. This is an unusual passage, isn't it? You hear a lot of people talk about the mark of the beast, and you see that a lot on you know books, a Christian bookstore, on the internet. But there also is a mark of the Lamb, that those who have given their lives to Christ have been marked by Him. So if you truly have yielded your heart to Christ and He is your Lord of your life and you look to Him in faith, you can't receive the mark of the beast because you have the mark of the Lamb. But notice when this mark has been given. It was given in a book of life belonging to the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Even before all this destruction and all this violence and all this sinfulness, the Lord had already prepared a way for us to be redeemed, for us to be rescued from our own selfishness and pride and destruction. From our own belief, unbelief, he's already made a way. He was always thinking of us. He was always loving us. And uh, turn over to chapter 5. <clears throat> Speaking of the redeemed, Revelation says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you were purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. <clears throat> One of the common misconceptions in uh, the average everyday Christian life is that we will die and go to heaven. That's a half-truth. Okay? When you die, your spirit does go to be in the presence of the Lord. But the goal of the New Testament is to bring about a new creation. That when Christ comes again, he will raise our bodies from the dead, restore our spirits to our bodies, and we will live with him forever in a new creation. This is prophesied, uh, shown in Revelation, it's prophesied in Isaiah, that the Lord will actually do such a marvelous work that he'll actually redeem the earth. And we will be walking with him in his presence, in physical, in, in glorified bodies, and the earth will be the way it was intended to be. In fact, it would be even greater than that of Eden. If you're curious about what I'm talking about, but read Revelation 21 and 22, and you'll see. And the Bible speaks of this new creation as a new Jerusalem. So the, the goal, one of the goals of the New Testament, one of the major themes, Greg Beale says, a New Testament scholar says, the great theme of New Testament is new creation is one of the goal of Christ was not only redeem us personally, but redeem all of creation and bring us back with him to live with him forever. And so one of the processes that, that was necessary for that to happen was in verse 9 where we were reading, you're worthy to take the scroll, really uh, pointing to Christ and open his seals. Why is he worthy? Because he's sinless. He died for our sin. He was risen again. He's the only one worthy. Uh, open this great New Testament, this scroll <clears throat> of truth and covenant promises. Notice that because you were slain, one of the things that Piper brings out in the podcast was that because you were slaughtered is actually the stronger word in the Greek. Probably the more accurate translation. Slain is not wrong, but slaughtered has the emphasis in the Greek. In other words, Christ allowed himself all the violence, 
of men to come upon him so that as you look to him, you wouldn't have to receive the violence of God in judgment over your sin. And he received that violence. A lot of people are offended that our world is so violent and they're mad at God and they don't understand why he has allowed bad things to happen. But this I can tell you. Christ died in our place. He allowed that violence to come upon himself. And he's done something about that violence and that sin in Jesus Christ. He's taken that violence upon himself so that you won't have to. He's taking that judgment upon himself so that you don't have to bear it. He's taken and done what was necessary to redeem you from your sins so you don't have to. So you can look to him in faith and believe that as for yourself. Believe his work for yourself by faith and you're saved. You believe. You're right with God. world is violent. As a result of a fallen world, one of the greatest truths that ever helped me was a book called True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. And in it, he shows how every aspect of our lives has been touched by the fall. And when I read that, he showed how it touches our relationships. It touches creation. It touches our ability to work and redeem and to grow crops and to uh, see results. It affects everything. Every relationship, everything the fall has. It woke me up and it helped me to realize that if I'm expecting perfection in this life, I'm going to be a frustrated person. If I expect everything to go my way, I'm going to be an angry, complaining person. If I expect everybody to do what um, they should, then I'm going to be a bitter person because I live in the midst of the fallout of the fall. But the good news is, Jesus Christ has done something about it in himself. He's come to redeem the world. He's come to redeem me. He's come to heal, come to restore. And that in one day that there will be a new creation. There will be the, the earth that we're longing for, the kind of life that we long to live in God and in love for one another. It is there and he's producing it and he's doing it through his cross and resurrection. If you're interested in these themes, I would encourage you to read a book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. Surprised by the hope of the resurrection of the dead and the work that Christ is doing to bring about new creation. Now let's turn to uh, 14.4 in Revelation. As he's changing our hearts and transforming us, he's redeeming us and giving us a heart of love for him and faith in him in the midst of a lot of turmoil and tribulation. This is what happens to his people. This is chapter 14. Then I looked, this is verse 1, Behold me, before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So this is a place. Mount Zion is, is another uh, synonym for the temple. It's a place where heaven and earth meets. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So what I was speaking of earlier, if you're a Christian and you've given your heart to Christ, you've looked to him in faith and you're a follower of Jesus, your name has been uh, the mark of the lamb has been placed on you. So you don't have to fear a mark of the beast. You don't have to fear some computer chip because you are walking with the Lord. 144,000 is a symbolic number. It's 12 by 12,000. It's to show a vast number of people who are complete in loving in God, the people of God. I heard a sound from heaven like a roaring waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song, 
before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one had learned the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the world. What a beautiful picture of worship. When we worship on Sunday mornings, we're participating with these folks who are worshiping the Lord right now. These folks, this is not a future thing. This is happening right now, even as we speak. There's this, anytime you see rushing waters, you hear sound, you hear peals of thunder, anytime you hear that kind of language in Scripture, it's wanting you to think about Mount Sinai. It's wanting you to think about Moses' experience and encounter with God on the heights of Mount Sinai. It wants you to think about Elijah and his encounter with a still small voice. It wants you to realize you're, this is a God encounter. You're in the, these people are over here in the very presence of the Lord. And these folks who have given their hearts to Christ, they know the new song. It's the new song of redemption. It's a song that pours forth from their hearts in gratitude and thanks that they've been redeemed by Christ. Those who have done not, this is a funny phrase, and everyone always gets tickled when I read it. Those who have did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure, they followed the Lamb wherever He goes. Anytime you have an army in the ancient world, those men would separate themselves from their wives in order to be totally focused on, spirit, on the warfare before them. So the redeemed have a focus. The phrase means that the redeemed are so focused on the Lord, they're allowing no distractions in their lives. And what do they do with this love for Christ and this passion that they have for Him? It says they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. If you are wanting more power in your spiritual life, more intimacy with the Lord, you're longing for to be able to see Him and experience Him more in your walk with Him and your devotion time and your worship, there's one thing that you need to have settled in your heart, that you will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And where the Lamb goes, oftentimes it's not easy. Oftentimes it's, it's difficult. Oftentimes it's frustrating. We assume that if God speaks to us and leads us somewhere, that it's going to be easy. And then if, he, if we've missed the Lord, it's going to be hard. But the Lord led Jesus, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. And then he was tempted by Satan at the end as he was the most hungry, most famished, most difficult. The Spirit led him into trials. So just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not the Lord. Because oftentimes he will lead us into those places where our hearts can be most, can most encounter him, where our, our lives can be most transformed by Him, where we can most depend on Him and trust Him. He doesn't always lead us to the easy. And when it's not easy, whatever job He's led you to, whatever relationships you're involved, whatever struggles you may be facing in school, whatever ministry opportunities you have, it may not be easy. You may want to quit. But what's in your heart is, I'll follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever he goes, I will lead, even if it's not easy, even if it's hard. I'm going to settle the one thing in my heart. He is Lord of my life. You see, there's a passage in Matthew that always springs up whenever I get frustrated. And um, it's 
It's at the end of Matthew, and it's toward right before the Transfiguration. And um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Discipleship. Uh, the English translation says cost of discipleship. But just based on this verse, and it's considered one of the classics of the 20th century, one of the great books, and he lived that life. I think one reason why the book's so appealing to so many people is because he was willing to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and it cost him his life. Okay. Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is uh, Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet for for forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the, the cost of discipleship is this, is that you're willing to deny yourself, walk in his pathways, his difficulties. You take up your cross. It's not just suffering. You're willing to, to be martyred for Christ. And you're going to follow him. And the reason why you're going to follow him is as you all this stuff you want to hold on, on to, you know, relationship people stuff, it will let go. The stuff you're putting your life in to bring you fulfillment, it, you will lose it. But if you totally surrender everything to Christ, you will gain everything back. What's the Jim Elliott thing? He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. The missionary to um, uh, the Wadani Indians. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? So Jesus is calling us to be like the, be the redeemed, to follow the lamb wherever he goes. That lamb was willing to be slaughtered for the violence of our world. He was willing to be slaughtered for our sin because our sin has reached so much destruction. I see a lot of people being angry at God. What they should be is angry at sin. We don't really think that our sin is really that bad. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't rob a bank. I didn't run over anybody with a car. You know, I'm not as bad as they are. Yet in my middle class, nice environment, I can still be just as selfish, just as painful, just as hurtful, just as God-denying in my behavior as anyone who ever shot anybody. So the Lord calls us to take our sin seriously, to look to the Lamb to know that we are forgiven in Him, and that, that we can follow him wherever he goes. There's a scary thing that I was mentioning to uh, Father Scott this morning that I ran across. It's in Matthew. We'll skip over to Matthew 7. In the time of Jesus, there is uh, writings where Matthew 7, 21 there are writings in the time of Jesus that are not in our Bible. Some are called the Apocrypha. Some of them are called, you hear scholars say, Second Temple Judaistic Literature. What was unique about that literature tells us, though, what a lot of that literature tells us is a lot of Jews thought because they had the temple, because they had the law, because they were circumcised, and because they kept the Sabbath, that was enough that God would never judge Israel. 
I think about the second temple Judaism was one reason why there's a second temple is because the first one was destroyed because they had not trusted the Lord, even though they had the temple, even though they had the law, even though they were circumcised, they fell in love with idols and were sinful. But they had this attitude that if we just have these things, that no judgment will come upon us. One of the things that Paul deals with in the book of Romans is he starts the book of Romans showing that Gentiles are sinful. And any Jew who would have read that said, yeah, Paul, you're right. Tell them, let them know. Go after them. But then he, in chapter 2, he goes, yeah, but you're no different than they are. You Jews are behaving the exact same way, even though you have the law, the prophets, the Sabbath, circumcision and law and the temple. So it's a scary thing that you can have all the right religious stuff, but your heart would not be totally yielded to Christ. And so in this very uh, uh, humbling and uh, convicting passage in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, be only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This should speak strongly to all of us, but especially those of us in the charismatic movement. They're doing all the right charismatic stuff. They're driving out demons. They're prophesying. They're doing miracles. We assume there would be false ones, deceptive ones. But they're doing all the good charismatic stuff, and they think that that's making them right with God. Yet they don't. Your hearts aren't willing to follow him completely, and they're not doing his will. So the Lord is saying, I don't know you, even though you're doing all the good religious charismatic stuff. What a scary thought. You can be completely caught up in church life and never know Jesus. Lord, everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You do the will of the Father in heaven because your heart is surrendered to him, because you are following the Lamb wherever he goes, because you put your trust in him, because you want to please him, because at the end time, at the new creation, you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the thing. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you're going to decide in your heart today, I'm going to follow him no matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard violent the world is, no matter disappointments I face, no matter struggles I have, I've got one thing settled in my heart. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. I'm going to trust him in every situation. And I'm going. he's going to have my whole heart. Because, Lord, I want to know you. I want to please you. I want to follow you. So no matter how hard the world is, we want to know him. And in the New Testament reading today, and Philippians 3, that Anna read, Paul sums it up here. And 3, 7. Whatever to my profit I now consider lost for the sake of Christ, whatever more I consider everything lost to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. That was Paul's heart. He went through beatings. He went through shipwrecks. He went through jail. 
He did it all because he followed the one. He followed the lamb wherever he goes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this challenge from your word. We pray that our hearts would be settled and that truly, Lord, you, our Lord, will be Lord of our hearts. And that we're absolutely determined, no matter what we face or where we go or what we do, that, Lord, we will follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.